and welcome to the Disability Education and Society podcast. This is a podcast for collective learning and unlearning in the struggle for intersectional liberation. We focus on educational realms expanding to other societal areas. We share our stories as academics as well as those of our featured guests, including disability activists involved with multifaceted dimensions of systems equity, self-determination efforts, anti-ableist, and anti-racist liberation. Join us as co-conspirators. Today's episode features Rhonda Bondi. Rhonda is an associate professor in special education at Hunter College and the director of the Hunter College Learning Lab. Rhonda began teaching as an artist in residence and then spent over 20 years in urban public schools as both a special and general educator. Rhonda's co-authored book, Differentiated Instruction Made Practical, was recently translated into Portuguese and is used by teachers in more than 30 countries to ensure all learners are thriving every day. Rhonda's research examines how teachers develop inclusive teaching practices through new technologies available at www.agileteacher.org. Hi, Rhonda. Thank you so much for agreeing to join us uh, in the DES podcast. Uh, we are ex very excited about the conversation we're going to have with you uh, and centering this idea of transforming fear into rigor, love, freedom, and joy in education. So to start us off, uh, we would like you to have to share a little bit uh, about your personal story, anything related to your journey um, in relation to disability. Well, I think um, like many young children as uh, growing up, you witness and experience disability. Um, I witnessed first by um, watching my grandparents um, change in their abilities as they aged and growing up in the farmland and thinking about how they would um, be independent and uh, how they would use um, different abilities that they had as they um, lost all different kinds of physical hearing and sight capacities as they aged and really framing. I think it helped to ground my ideas about disability in terms of just being part of a natural human experience. So I think that was an important experience as a child. But what impacted me most in my teaching was when I was a, a, a young person, I was an artist in residence in schools, and I used to do drama and dance in the schools. And uh, I, I um, was in Brooklyn and we had a three-year grant to do social studies through drama. And the principal asked me if I could work with all children in the school in the fifth grade. And there were four classes, but we only had money in the grant for three classes. And so I said, sure, I would stay and work an extra class, which meant like going through lunch. So it ended up being the whole day. So I couldn't take an afternoon job. So I had to take a different night job. <laughs> it became very complicated to ensure that all children got to be in the play and got to participate in the year long process of writing this play in social studies. And on the day of the play, the press was there, CBS News did a Sunday morning, you know, uh, thing, and it was really beautiful and brilliant. We had done this um, incredible play, and uh, I got interviewed, and I said, yes, and I'm most proud that all students were part of the play. And a teacher came up to me after that interview and said, um, my students were not part of the play. You shouldn't have, you, know, you didn't uh, include all students. And I, I, I was maybe 20 years old. I was very young and I had no idea. So I went to the principal and I said, I stayed, I stayed all day. I took a different job at night. Who was not included in the play? Like somebody said their children weren't included in the play. And upon investigation, I found out that, that students who were deaf and hard of hearing were taught in a girl's shower room that had been converted into a classroom kind of behind the gym in a in a hallway I'd never even been down in the building. And that's where the children were. I found them 
and the teacher, and she had made the classroom beautiful. She put in carpet, and I mean, it, it was a delightful, just bright and wonderful place, all hidden. Uh, and sure enough, there were three students who were in the fifth grade in that group. And I, I felt awful about it. Um, I cried the whole way back into the city. And I, I just, I couldn't imagine how hurt they must have been not to be in the play. Uh, and my boss told me to stop crying and uh, to find out what it would take to include the students. And it was a three-year grant. I couldn't change what had happened this year, but I could change what I did in my teaching going forward. And I thought that was the best advice somebody, anybody gave me. So uh, NYU was very nice. They helped me learn how I could include the deaf children and taught me sign language. Over the summer, I became certified in special ed. And um, we went forward and included the students. And that process of watching the teachers become friends, the students then became included um, all day long for many different subjects. The students became friends with each other. They had never talked to each other before. And I realized that we really shouldn't have general ed and special ed or even inclusion. Everyone should just be in school uh, from, from that experience. And it uh, really helped me to ask important questions when I come to a school and really investigate for who is in the school, um, really getting to know the people in the school and really making sure that everyone is together when I'm teaching. So that was, a, it has definitely shaped everything that has happened since then. Fascinating. I have to comment about this because uh, I think I have mentioned to you, uh, and I have probably mentioned this in the podcast before, that I went to, quote unquote, an inclusive setting uh, as a default uh, because there was no legislation and there wasn't any real special education yet in the 1970s in, in Venezuela. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that if, if there had been special education, I, I would have been excluded by default. Um, so I, I feel like these these legislative solutions that we develop to quote unquote include folks with disabilities are paradoxically part of the problem, right? Because we we create walls. They are essentially policy walls that uh, play with difference and demarcate things in legalistic terms. Um, and so these these fundamental what what you said about it's just being in school, the, the being together, the process of becoming part of, of a class. You know, I went to the classroom with such and such, and I became friends with this or that. Those kinds of things cannot happen if, if kids are not in school, not even if, if they are partially there. You know, like they come for one hour and they take them somewhere else because all of that creates dynamics that are artificial. And children feel the artificialness of that. So um, I really appreciate your story because I think it highlights the the why of our passion, and I'm including Paolo in this boat uh, about so-called inclusion. And we're trying to push even beyond the the word inclusion because w when you are including, you're already acknowledging the exclusion. You're already recognizing. Um, that you're, you know, sort of hosting somebody in because you've excluded them first. So that there is a genealogy that's tied to exclusion in inclusion, um, if that makes any sense. So thank you for that story. Um, and I love the fact that this is an artistic experience because the arts are, and this is the, not the right word, inclusive by definition. I mean, uh, anybody can experience the arts in in different ways that 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 creativity space um i think is is what should be at the roots of learning right it, it's part of i think um this will probably connect to some of the conversations we're going to have later as i was listening to your story Rhonda, and thank you for sharing that i i thought a lot about 
educators. And so your role in one, right, seeing the problem, and then two, collectively trying to rectify it. Uh, and so that was really nice to learn that there are many educators across the country and the world who do this kind of work. And there are also many that don't. And so I think that the, the power of educators to me really came out strongly there. And, and I'll share a really quick story too, because it made me think um, about, I, we're going to talk about this article that you co-wrote and reading that article also had a lot of the embodiment that you shared uh, here and, and that uh, to me that article um, had a lot of this uh, idea of of what we're trying to what I will be talking about here shortly to to quickly come back to like a, a quick story is that uh, my son who just graduated last year so this this past May uh, was really troubling was that they had a, a graduation of course for all all 12th graders graduating and uh, they wanted to exclude my son because he they felt he would not do well in the graduation the the noise would be too overwhelming for him and so they proposed that uh all of the kids in that room and, and he's in, in it had a special education room would be in that room until their names are called and once their names are called they're gonna return back to that room and so that was the proposed um inclusion <laughs> of students into their 12 years worth of schooling and so i mean this again kind of uh, it highlights both of your stories like this inclusion by exclusion in the case where I mentioned there are educators who are tirelessly working towards having students have the best experience there are those I feel like in, in the case of my son that were just trying to please whoever they wanted to please but not centering disabled students in, in graduation. It's very much of a marginal inclusion, if it's any even considered inclusion at all. So just wanted to share that story because that came up for me. Um, and, and and then to return to uh, what uh, you know we're here for in this podcast is that um, you know you, your co-author article titled Transforming Fear into Rigor, Love, Freedom, and Joy a new paradigm of standards-based reform um, is what we're going to be uh, uh, having you share a lot more about here today, Rhonda. So I I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about um, what interested me about this work is the, is the genealogy of this work. Um, and so you, you note that in, in the article, in the liberatory spirit of Black scholars, um, and so uh, can you can you say a little bit more about that uh, genealogy and share that with those engaging in this podcast? Mm -hmm. our our work, um so uh, research partners and co-authors in in this article and and several others is Akani Zusho and Rathi Kumar. And they're both educational psychologists. And so we are always looking for, this interdisciplinary, these intersections between um, cognitive science, motivation science, culturally relevant pedagogy and practice. And so we have kind of a, a several papers over time that, that we've been exploring these intersections and how can we bring uh, research into practice through these intersections. So this paper began by really thinking about culturally relevant um, pedagogy standards for teachers. And we started by critiquing those standards and noticing the neutral language in the standards and the um, lack of specificity in the standards to the extent that we felt the standards couldn't really be operationalized to make any kind of changes in school. 
uh, whatsoever because they were so so nondescript and neutral that they weren't really talking about race. They weren't talking about exclusion. They weren't talking about inequities that the standards should be uh, remedying. So that's where it started. And then um, we got reviewer feedback on the first paper and we then focused more on the history of standards. And we were also, um, it was just, uh, we started working on the paper during 2020 and we got interested in where are the intersections of the themes between black scholars and educational psychology. Educational psychology is primarily quantitative, often by white scientists um, and shapes much of our testing, shapes much of the things related to standards in our school system. And the school system perpetually does not serve all students. Black scholars, on the other hand, often are using more qualitative methods, more methods grounded in the community. And so we got to thinking, well, are there any intersections? Are there overlaps between themes from black scholars research on education, envisioning what education could be and should be? And if you look at the success of um, black educators, particularly uh, women educators before Brown versus Board, right? They could teach students to be in a world that didn't exist, right? They produced all kinds of leaders uh, through their pedagogy. And so we got interested in those intersections and illuminating the intersections between educational psychologists and black scholars, and then using those intersections to critique standards as what we're seeking to achieve in education and really thinking about, could we suggest a new paradigm where the quality of the experience, both in process and product, is the ultimate outcome that we're seeking? And when we look to those qualities, if we looked at those intersections, we found love, joy, rigor, which is, I think, personified by this idea of standards and freedom or agency as really being the key themes that could create a new North Star. So that's how the paper, we worked on it over two years. And I hope that it's very inspirational for practitioners, especially now when people seem to really be searching for what is the new idea of schooling coming out of COVID. This idea of rigor, um, you associated just now with, with the standards. But can you think of other ways of embodying or enacting rigor that connect more explicitly with joy, love, and freedom? Because part of the problem with rigor is that it tends to be associated with um, pain. <laughs> yeah, there is there is this binary construct around rigor, right? It, this is either rigorous. Or, or not. not. Uh, yeah. Right. So people start going to methodological. Um, it's almost like like the medieval tendency of trying to find out how many angels you could feed into the you know the top of a pin or whatever. I mean these weird discussions that were essentially methodologically irrelevant, um, but they were very important theological questions, quote unquote. Um, and I think with rigor, you, you're you're almost getting into this science of rigor uh, in its own right, which which is perpetuating the whole neutrality game. And uh, for the sake of quote unquote object objectivity, that there is a, a need to disconnect it from real things. Um, so could you could you say a little bit more about this this paradox of rigor being? Yeah. Uh, uh, as it's typically read by quote unquote experts in assessment, especially, and mm -hmm. how it is typically read by these communal leaders that you're talking about, the communal uh, pedagogists that that you know brought for for centuries, even in contexts where they were prohibited uh, and could be punished with death, you know when when slaves were being educated because they even 
found ways to educate even in those contexts where the plantation yeah. was going on and, and many of those pedagogues were doing things that were punished with death and, and they still did it they still knew how relevant it was to find this sense of freedom agency and find joy and love in the middle of mystery in the middle of the worst painful kinds of sufferings that these people were undergoing yes um it's an interesting word because i i don't like rigor because i work a lot with teachers all around the world and when you translate rigor it becomes stiff and dead and, <laughs> you know petrified kind of which is the opposite really of of well, it's good. cadavers. You have the with cadavers the the rigor that that's right, with cadavers, to examine exactly. how somebody somebody died, and they examine the right. the rigor rigor mortis, which is sort of this, right. this Latin thing to say, oh, how how was the, exactly. the produced? <laughs> so yeah. it's a very United States uh, kind of term to be used in education. I think uh, very popular in education psychologists. So. Um, my co-authors really prefer the word rigor, um, but me being a classroom teacher who goes around the world, I, I kind of prefer the word optimal challenge. And the meaning that you're really after is that learning is not going to be relevant and satisfying if it, if it doesn't have some challenge to it. As humans, we, we need a little bit of challenge to um, get us interested. And as a practitioner, I, I just couldn't find a definition in the literature for rigor or optimal challenge that I thought really could um, be useful for educators. So I came up with a sort of a, a formula, if you will, uh, that I think is very practical that I'll share with you. So if you think about optimal challenge, it's two ideas multiplied together. And the two ideas are effort and complexity. And effort, to me, means the energy that it would require to sustain focus for a particular amount of time. So how much energy would it require for a student to sustain their focus on this task for a long time or a short time? And that can change the amount of effort it takes if you're asking someone to work very quickly or if you're asking them to sustain interest for a long period of time that changes the amount of effort it takes to really harness your energy and um, to generate energy for the task so that's effort uh, complexity could be divided into the number of parts the ways the parts fit together and the thinking required to manipulate those parts. So what kind of thinking is required to move the parts around and how many parts are you moving to make greater meaning? So I think when, when I think about challenge as a teacher, I always think about the effort and the complexity um, because you can adjust any of those levers that I just mentioned. Like for effort, you could adjust the amount of time, you could adjust um, the amount of time on a sustained focus. Um, and you could pay attention to what kind of energy is this requiring from the student. In complexity, of course, teachers are good at adjusting the number of parts, but not so much always thinking about the ways the parts fit together and thinking about the thinking that is being required to manipulate those parts. Um, and so I think that's a practical way to think more about the challenge and to think about every single task as having challenge. And that can be made more optimal for the learning conditions when thinking very specifically about the parts that are creating the challenge in the experience. Hi there. While we intend to make our podcast as accessible as possible, we ask those that have the financial means to support us by subscribing as a patron to our podcast for as little as $5 a month. To subscribe, go to our website, disabilityed.podbean.com. By subscribing as a patron, you will help ensure that we can continue to create and share new episodes while supporting other co-conspirators who face financial and health difficulties. 
for those with financial difficulties, please connect with us about obtaining a free copy of our books and or engaging in additional conversations with us. You can also support the show by hitting the follow button, share this podcast with Among Your Network, and leave us a comment and positive rating. Your support means so much. I'm wondering, because I'm thinking of, of the lesson plan, which is sort of the typical unit uh, yeah. that teachers tend to use to think of this combination of effort and complexity. Um, in theory, the lesson plan is also neutral. Um, it's supposed to impact all the students the in same, same way. way. <laughs> Even if you differentiate. Even the same amount of time. Yeah, exactly. So how, how do you um, how do you plug something like difference, mm -hmm. uh, ability differences, uh, racial differences, um, you know, um, gender differences and um, class differences that tend to be connected to a lot of these efforts and complexities? Um, oh, just just go and buy in the supermarket such and such. And everybody assumes that everybody will have you know, fifty, a hundred dollars to right. go and purchase whatever for this science experiment that they're gonna do in school. You see what I mean? Yes, um, absolutely. But, but all of a sudden, people with certain income brackets are excluded yes. from the lesson plan, and they will not be able to. Um, you know, it's it's that that bracketed. Um, impact of difference in how how this formula could work in a contexted sort of situational thing. So how, how could you say a little bit more about that? Sure, I have two strategies for teachers. Um, one is to plan with an at, if, then, so, and if statement. So at each point in the lesson, however you want to divide up your lesson, it could be beginning, middle, and end would be easy. Maybe it's at the opening, at the group work, at the mini lesson, however you think about the segments of your lesson. Um, and you could also do it more broadly when thinking about the whole curriculum at the first unit or second unit, but at gives you the place that you're at. So at blank, if some, all or individual students. So you have to think about students in different ways. Some, all or individual students have or need. So maybe they have background knowledge, they need vocabulary, they have materials at home, they might need materials at home for the example you just used. Um, so it's at this point, if all, some or individual students need or have x whatever it might be then blank how are you going to adjust instruction so and the so is really important because most differentiated instruction ends with these random kind of adjustments i'm going to give three of this or i'm going to give the students this but you're going to give the students the materials so what what change in student work would you expect to see and this is how you'll measure the outcome of the teaching adjustment so what change in student work would you see? Then, wait, then change in student work. Um, and if, and if I see the change, then what will you do? Will you continue it? Will you, how, what, what will happen? Um, if you don't see the change, then what will happen? So it's at, if, then, so, and if, at the point in the lesson, uh, if all summer individual students have or need, then what you're going to do, the teaching move, so the change in student work, and if, whether you see the change or not, what are you going to do? So it kind of leads to a cycle. And this kind of mental thinking can be done in the shower, you know, maybe not while driving, but in New York City, we can do it on the train on the way to school thinking about one or two points in every lesson we teach and thinking that mental flexibility, imagining that all students uh, will have and will need different things. 
at different points of the lesson and mentally preparing um, how we're going to adjust our teaching, I think makes the lesson plan start to turn into a much more flexible document than mm -hmm. a linear progression of actions because you have these if-then statements and always measuring uh, the effectiveness of your move by the change in student work you expect to see. Because I think oftentimes people think, oh, I'll give students a graphic organizer, I'll give them this and this will make it accessible. Um, I'll give them a book on tape, now it's accessible. But what is the change that you're really after in the, in the student learning? And if the change isn't gonna occur by the graphic organizer, well, then we need to think of something different. Um, so uh, I think that that is the best way to uh, think about that. I also sometimes like to think about lesson plans as a series of plays, like a sports team. And if you think about plays in a sports team, they are um, based on a situation. When we're in this situation, we're going to make this form uh, and each person has a, a purpose in the play and then they move together as a team to carry it out. And that's really what we're doing in class. And we have very common situations like review, introduction, correction, gathering responses. Those things can be organized in terms of plays that are routines. That works really well for all the students in the class because they're in on the lesson plan. Plays are visual. They're shared with the team. It's not like the teacher is leading students who have no idea where they're going. Uh, everybody knows, oh, this is a moment where we're in review. We know how we work together to uh, review information uh, as a team. And so I think that's also, and you can just put those plays within the linear lesson plan that's often required by school administration. It doesn't mean that you have to turn in something that's rigid and linear and does not expect students to, and learning to unfold in surprising and um, challenging ways. But instead you can expect surprises and challenges just like a sports team does as the game unfolds and uh, feel equipped uh, to follow, you know, to engage in those surprises and challenges. Uh, with enthusiasm and confidence because you have um, some tools to help you in that situation. So I think that's really what a lesson plan needs to be. Right, this is this is Paolo's terrain. So I, I shouldn't even be asking this question, but I, I'm sure Paolo has some more insights um, to, to uh, converse with you about this. I think one thing that came to mind as you're talking about like the world the teacher and you you're kind of talking about plays and and the world the teacher there it made me think of of something from the article that really st stuck out which uh, you and your Carl author stated many teachers leave programs thinking that motivation is a personality trait rather than a function of the environment that they co-create with students so that i felt that that was a really powerful quote and uh resonated with my experiences when speaking to educators who some of them will talk about motivation well this the student is not motivated they have no motivation to to do this and yeah like very much what you said uh blame it on the student and, and something's wrong with the student they can't get motivated so my, my question to you then is like then because then you talk about love freedom and joy and i feel like th there's there are many connections there um between like motivation right rigor love freedom and joy if you could share a little bit more about these ideas um and, and how you are thinking there yes that's a, a great connection. So we always teach teachers the secrets to motivation, which is ABCM, autonomy, belonging, competence, and meaning. So all students are motivated. They might not be able to harness their motivation um, given the environment and the task. Um, so how can we help them do that? We can increase opportunities for autonomy or agency, which is related to freedom. We can increase opportunities for meaning, which is often related to love 
it could be related to joy, right? Feeling um, joyful and um, inspired by a topic or feeling passion for a topic. Um, belonging is definitely related to love, can also be related to joy. So those can kind of overlap and love for your uh, for the topic, being interested in it, love for yourself, love for the people that your community that you're learning with, um, love for the way that you're learning something, um, you know, the, that can be, um, so that's connected um, often to belonging. Uh, also, just really students feeling like they belong in learning this topic. They not just belong in the space, that's important, belong with the people in the community, that's important. And they also belong in the curriculum. The curriculum some, somehow has meaning in their life. Uh, ABC and competence, I think is a really important one because it's not just knowing uh, what you're able to do, but it's also knowing the questions that you have and what you need to learn. So you can feel really confident um, and and be completely lost if you know you're lost, <laughs> you know. So um, and that has a lot to do with freedom, being able, uh, feeling equipped to pursue interests that you have, and feeling equipped to engage with the challenges that occur when you're learning. So I think um, love, joy, rigor, and freedom are are definitely overlaps with the core feelings um, that help us harness our intrinsic motivation. I think if you focus on motivation, you get pretty far toward love, joy, rigor, and freedom, but maybe not all the way. So I think love, joy, rigor, and freedom kind of takes us even further. I mean, I don't want us to go out today without talking a little bit about this joy, the idea of joy as a learning outcome. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm going to share with you a story that Paula and I experienced together. Um, where we were trying to plan for um, an IEP. And for people who are not in the United States, again, IEPs are these individualized education program things that are built into what students with disability have to go every year. And it's, it's sometimes it takes uh, the entire time that uh, students with disabilities are in schools, uh, even in uh, kinder, uh, you know, even in, in preschool context that they undergo at least an annual meeting to deal with these goals and all this, this kind of thing. And a lot of the, the forms that the states have keep saying that the, the goal has to be measurable. Um, and they connect to standards. And as you said, the standards are, are very much, um, neutral and disconnected from any reality, um, any issue of, of difference, race, ability, et cetera. So um, the outcome standards are not very useful. And we were trying to emphasize uh, process standards and mathematics goal setting. Um, and uh, Paul and I have co-authored a book that came out. Uh, we we co-authored it with uh, two other uh, folks, it was four of us talking about this notion of, of goal setting in IEPs and talking about process standards. Um, and it, the teachers were very resistant to this idea. And, and what I'm trying to think of is, especially thinking of joy. I mean, the, the fact that they think that joy is not measurable. Um, and there's all kinds of surveys to measure happiness, for instance. Um, I mean, I know that uh, the social psychology world measures joy all the time in, in the form of happiness. But in education, the perception from teachers, from a lot of practitioners, is that this is not measurable and it's not going to fly when it comes to these kinds of goals that are um, going to drive interventions and a lot of things for people with, with disabilities. Could you could you talk a little bit about this idea of joy as a learning outcome connected to both motivation, but also connected to things like process standards or ways to make um, this part of of something like an IEP or something of right. of those those sort of things? Right. I think. It might be difficult um, for teachers 
who are using a software program and they're like pulling down goals from a, a, a database of goals, it might be very difficult to find a goal that, that you think is measuring something like joy or love or the extent students felt challenged or um, uh, freedom, agency. If you just wanted to look at how independent uh, was a student, that, that might be really challenging. I think that would be our ultimate uh, goal is that in these software programs, there were such kinds of goals. Yeah, but, um, yeah, but part of the issue with IEPs is that they are by law supposed to be co-created with the family. and. Right. At least a member of, of the parents was was pushing for, uh, for these the kinds of goal setting, and they were requesting it. So it was not even a question of of whether somebody with with some some sort of power to claim this was was not asking it. it they right. were just refusing to go along with a family, uh, this particular family member, uh, in in dealing with these issues of. Uh, process standards or all, all kinds of things that they were just refusing to go there because they wanted to have goals that were um, goals. in many ways meaning, meaningless i mean in being right. measurable they were they were meaningless oh, we're gonna achieve such and such just by uh increasing whatever um right this, this knowledge in science and mathematics yeah and they were just doing it very three times a week yeah. Exactly. Something yeah. very, very mechanical. That yeah. that's how it felt, and they were I, refusing to be co-creative with with right. the family in in this process. Right. So I I think I think those pull downs are part of the problem because you're not actually writing goals together with the family and the student, and so it leads to the teacher in this one place that's kind of controlled almost by these pull down menus. Um. So I I think like. That's a part of the problem. So how do we deal with that problem? I think, well, one thing um, I think is really helpful is thinking about street data and what kind of data are we collecting in this IEP? And um, to invite teachers to read the IEP, perhaps before the meeting, the previous IEP, and see if they can tell the story, build a narrative of this student from what we know from the IEP. And it might the lever might be the assessments that you're using to measure progress toward the goal. Um, and if we start to look at those assessments, how close is the data to the student, and how close is it to the um, the goals that the student has articulated that they're that they are most interested in in working toward? Um, and so I think like that might be a place. That where everyone could engage, like what is the story, what is the narrative that this assessment data tells tells us, and is that the is that the story of the student, and is that the story of the student's learning that the student is aspiring toward, and if it's not, maybe we could start to change the assessments, and I think like it's kind of a conversation between the goals and the assessments, mm -hmm. um, and if. And I feel like sometimes when we start at the goal level, it's it's very hard to get everybody on the same page. But if we start at the, the story of the student's learning, which a student can present themselves. Um, and so I've been encouraging the students that I work with to uh, look at the work that they've done throughout the week um, and to tag um, moments where they felt love, either loved by the community, love for themselves? When were they encouraged to do something loving for themselves on the weekend or uh, in the class? Or what would be an act of love for your for yourself? And, and how would that um, be encouraged by um, the program that you're currently in? So to tag those moments of love, joy, challenge, and agency or freedom, and then to bring together evidence from your work to your IEP meeting of how learning is playing out for you. These are moments where I'm feeling loved. These are um, where I've, ways I've felt agency. And to look, is that, what story does that tell us? What's, what's missing from there? Um, usually moments come up where the student will say, I really don't feel 
any belonging or association in these classes for these reasons. But then we can start to see, you know, to start to build the narrative. And from that narrative, well, how do we want the narrative to change? Well, in these ways, let's set goals to achieve those changes. And so I feel like that might be a way to get toward this new North Star is by starting very close to the student story that they're experiencing every day um, in their lives at school and how they're bringing school into the rest of their lives outside of school. And that seems to be part of the problem with students with disabilities in general is that they are perceived so much from a deficit lens <laughs> that, that their human the human nature is um, seen in deficit um, ways. So it, even those kinds of things, um, you know, uh, Kant thought, for instance, that uh, women could not experience the sublime, that it was just only for rational manly whatever um i think in a way a lot of teachers uh, unfortunately think that people with disabilities certain types of students with disabilities are uh, just unable to experience these these higher level sentiments or dimensions and and of course that prevents them from from even exploring those questions uh, by the way i i really want to say that i re appreciate seeing this street data book reference that you had in the article I, I was not familiar with the book and i downloaded it um i was i was really struck by um the the power of of using that approach um in terms of assessment and i think in terms of many other kinds of applications that he could have beyond schooling. I, I really invite postcast folks um, to take take uh, like an account of that particular book, the Street Data book, because um, it's it's really powerful. Mm -hmm. um, Paul, any? Think, oh, oh I was just going to say, like the, I think like to bring humanity and humanizing qualities into the IEP. I, I do think like starting with the narrative of the student or story might really help to change that from sort of a, a clinical type, you know, these are the measurable goals, like a business transaction, mm -hmm. uh, more into the story of someone's life, like a, a human life and how we we um, aspire for this life to unfold. Right. In one of the things that tends to be required in IEP forms is is asset based um, elements, and you you will notice that it tends to be the shortest. Um, and it's not just that it's short; is is that it's a very superficial right. portion of the IEP. Um, and yeah, often not related, right? Yeah, not related to the exactly to learning at all. It's oh, like he, the student he is friendly. Yeah, he smiles a lot. He's a friendly. I mean, these vague um, uh, adjectives that don't say anything, and they are totally disconnected from from the learning process. Um, so it, it's it's really difficult to to engage because even if you tell stories, um, they're still reading the stories from from a distance. Uh, like when you're reading the story of this cutie dog that data trick here and there, you know, because they are assuming that it's a dog and it's not a human. It's it's a subhuman category just by having or by, by being labeled with a disability of whatever kind. Yeah, and I think that to go back to Alexis's uh, story in, in, in just full, full transparency, it's okay, Alexis, this, this is a story about Alexis and I working on my son's IEP, and and I was the parent who who pushed for these um, better mathematics goals as a math educator, knowing how important those are, and how I was very intentional about the strength section about getting the IEP team members to hey let's talk about this let's put this down. And then at the same time, uh, to what Alexis 
just mentioned that, okay, that's nice. <laughs> we have this nice paragraph down, but the rest of the IP has nothing to do with that paragraph because then we get kind of sucked into the deficits. Okay, how are we going to fix this problem and, and forget about everything that we wrote about these awesome exactly. things about my my son and so i i really appreciate and 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 felt this desire of having these kind of uh, what you mentioned um aspirations for standards that are connected to joy and freedom and that if we had if educators and parents and, and ip members had access to this pull down menu that had these <laughs> goals right rather than these other sort of uh, horrible IEP cookie cutter goals that are out there. Like if we have access to that and say, oh, what about this one? I mean, we can highlight mm -hmm. the joys of the student that connects to their narrative, right. their desires. And, and and that would make those conversations so much so different, more powerful and, and really center the student um, and, and, and avoid this uh what I often find in self-determination conversations is about, I, I want to become a better worker, right? I want to have these skills so I, 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 I could, you know, serve others. I mean, I mean, these kind of things that are, are very much aligned to, again, these neoliberal agendas. But, but I think what you're saying in your articles are, are very different uh, from, from, from those aspects. And so I, uh, yeah, just wanted to highlight that aspect. I feel like we need like steps for right now. Like what can you do right now um, so that um, listeners feel like they could take action? And like a small thing you could do right now is take the goals that are in the IP and sort them under the category of which goals would support or build feelings of love, which goals would result in feelings of joy, which goals would result in feelings of challenge, which goals would result in uh, feelings of freedom and agency, and see if, if the goals could be sorted in that, that little activity doesn't require you to change the software or the IEP, you know, but could be done at, uh, as a converse in that conversation might really um, help teachers to think about um, well, the whole team to think about how we are, you know, what we're doing, how we're assessing what we're doing and possibly lead to changes in those goals. It might start to like it would be an action step of really starting a conversation, I think, even if you just use one of those like joy, for example, or challenge, you know, one or two would be enough, I think, to build a, a really important conversation in an IEP meeting that, you know, at, as a first step wouldn't require a big change uh it would just take you know 10 minutes maybe of, of discussion but it, it it could lead to important changes i always try to think about the first step because um i mean you you have to have the vision of, of what you're after uh but i think the first step is really important because once motion starts it's often hard to stop but it's very hard to take the first step sometimes um, I must say that in in that that situation that Paolo was referring to, I was I, I was the advocate, and part of the issue, um, I mean, both of us with PhDs, we were coming at this from a an expertise uh, stance, and we were downplayed as not knowing their their stuff. Uh, I remember in that context, this this male guy, a white guy, who said. Or trust us, um, he will be ready by year 13 of high school. And by the way, uh, for people who are not from the United States, there's only 12 years in high school. So what they were saying is he will be ready when he's not here anymore. Um, so it, it's it's almost like a, a, a dystopia of sorts. Um, and I think... Um, I mean, as a, as an advocate who who's been working with uh, especially folks who are uh, linguistically different in in this country, uh, I, I I feel like that first step is is very difficult, even though is is 
simple um, because there is an epistemic um, injustice right there. Uh, there is there is not um, a, a horizontal conversation that respects the um, testimony of of these people just because they are coming from the family side or from an advocacy side, they're seen as the enemy. So it, it starts with this compliance mentality. It, it becomes more of a, a war zone than a, a horizontal teamwork. It, it, yeah, the law says that we are all part of the IEP team, but they see it in compliance terms as a risk management game. So it becomes a war game. And this is going back to the idea that policies tend to be uh, walls. They tend to create walls that prevent even something like joy or love or freedom from emerging. And even rigor, um, because it's supposed to be, standards are supposed to be creating rigor, but they are so, yeah, so neutral, so so dead, so part of the cadaver version of rigor, uh, rigor mortis that they they just don't help they just prevent conversational space uh that needs to be there horizontally for for this to happen as a first step Rhonda, i i really like your first step suggestion because it does in a way counter what alexis just shared um this kind of wolf mentality because I, I feel like the there the highlights of my twelve I, years of IEP experience with my son, there have been some, and that has really occurred. I think when these com these kind of conversations happen, when you pose these questions to families, to students and teachers, who I think at their heart they care about these Definitely. notions of joy and freedom, right? Like like how. To what extent do these goals approach these? I mean, and then, hey, let's let's kind of think together. I mean, I feel like it will foster that. I mean, these are the conversations that typically happen in IP meetings. However, if if those questions are posed and uh, and then you have the opportunity to address those questions, oh, let's address these questions about like these. What? How do we see these reflected in in, in the IP as a whole? I think that's a wonderful step to I think interrupt at the very least, interrupt the kind of conversations you have in IEP meetings. Right. We, you know, I, I'm very much thankful for just the exploration of, of these learning outcomes um, because they're, they're just not part of the conversation, unfortunately. I think we, we have become accustomed to, to values driving education that are just non-human, um, very much neoliberal things, uh, which justify the the pizza stuff, uh, all these assessments that are supposed to be connected to um, standardized learning and uh, all all the conversations that are framed in terms of um, competition uh, among countries to see which one will get the the best people ready for a high tech world and um, that sort of thing is 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 what drives the conversation. So you putting at the center these these values, I think, is is a very 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 powerful um, paradigm shift uh, in terms of of keeping on on going with this. Um, so I'm very much happy for for the time we we've spent conversing um, on on these topics. Hello. Uh, we would like to see if you have any final thoughts. I, I know we took up over the time we, we promised we would take and we can have this conversation, this really rich conversation for much longer. Uh, but we want to have any kind of last thoughts you want to share. And, and if folks want to find more about your stories, your insights, your work, please let them know uh, where, where they could connect with you. I do have a website um, called Agile Teacher. Dot org. So it's agile, like agile, agileteacher.org. And um, we have some um, practice tools and um, different routines there for teachers to help help them. And I think, you know, the key is um, teacher education. We need to reimagine how we're preparing teachers so that 
when they engage and facilitate these IEP meetings and all of their practices, it's, it's from a very different place. Um, so I'm hoping that our work leads to uh, or helps propel lots of different changes by uh, uh, the whole community. Uh, it won't be by us alone for sure, but I hope that we can contribute in positive ways toward really reimagining teacher education because I think um, we're not gonna change P-12 student education until we change teacher education as they're you know preparing it, it's a cycle. So I really um, hope that everyone who listens uh, takes at least one first uh, step toward ensuring all learners are learning every day and feeling love, joy, rigor, and freedom, both the teachers and the students themselves. Yes, very, very powerful last word. Thank you so much, Rhonda. so much for engaging with the DES podcast. We post new episodes every few weeks. The DES podcast is made possible and sustainable in solidarity with you and those who generously volunteer their time to converse with us. We hope you join us on our next episode.